Well, good morning. Um, before uh, I, I read God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before your word this morning, Father, we pray that, uh, Father, you would speak to us. Father, I pray that uh, the words that, uh, that I speak, Father, would be your words speaking to your people. Father, that um, I pray that, Lord, if uh, they're just my words, that, Father, you would, uh, Father, close people's ears and that they would fall asleep. But, Father, that if they're your words, Father, that you would open all of our hearts and minds to hear that word and, Father, to respond to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today we're going to be looking um, at, uh, well, mainly at Ephesians 3, but uh, to set the context, we'll start uh, towards the end of Ephesians chapter 2. And it starts with the word consequently, but uh, you'll pick up the context fairly quickly. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, 
from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Well, we're taking a break from uh, the... Uh, from the series that James has, James has been leading us through, where we've been uh, looking at the arc of the Bible narrative, starting, as we saw in the kids' talk, uh, from the Garden of Eden, and, uh, and we've, uh, we, we've got to the point where um, the, uh, the, the kingdom of Israel has been established and is falling to pieces, um, where uh, the... Uh, where God has given them a king, even a really good king in David. But, uh, but we know that uh, it's not the end of the story, that there's, uh, that there's something more to come. And, uh, and, we, uh, and, and we're trying to, to figure out what's going on. But we're taking a break from that. And, uh, and we've got uh, the three weeks of the, uh, uh, of the school holidays where uh, various of us are, are preaching on miscellaneous things. And I always hate being uh, told that I can preach on just about anything uh, because uh, it then leads me very exposed when I choose to preach on the things that God is speaking to me about. But uh, today, as we look at God's Word, uh, you know, it's all of us, we love a good mystery. The story that has you on the edge of your seat, wondering what's going to happen. Will the hero triumph? Of course he will, but there's the tension. Uh, who is the unknown villain, the evil force behind the things that are going on that hasn't quite yet been revealed? Who can the hero really trust? I know, I know. No, it's someone else. All will be revealed in time, but we're impatient, eager to know the outcome our hearts pounding with anticipation, jumping at the unexpected developments, totally immersed in the story. And over the past few months, we've been following a mystery, God's mystery, the longest suspense thriller by far, beginning in the Garden of Eden at the dawn of time, and piece by piece, clue by clue, event by event, revealing the greatest mystery of all time. Now, I think we find it hard to get this, this side of the cross. When we've been Christians for a decade or two, our familiarity makes us take it for granted 
and the tension and mystery fades. It's like re-watching that movie whose dramatic moments had your pulse racing the first time you saw it. It's just not the same. You enjoy remembering your first excitement. You look to see if there were clues you missed. Did the villain tip their hand without you noticing? Uh, but the surprise is gone. The experience is different. The memory you treasure is actually your first reading, your first watching. The time when it was fresh, alive with possibilities, full of tension and suspense. So let's try and put aside our I've seen this before mindset and look at the mystery with fresh eyes. Our passage begins with something astounding. Imagine for a moment that you're a Syrian refugee eking out an existence in a Lebanese refugee camp knowing that your village has been destroyed, your possessions lost, knowing that you will never be able to return home, being completely without hope, without a future. And imagine that you discover that the stranger you met yesterday has somehow arranged for you to be granted citizenship in a peaceful, prosperous country, arranged for you to be transported there, to be welcomed, accepted, to be given assistance to establish yourself, to be treated with dignity and respect. Well, it's unimaginable, isn't it? In the real world, things like that just don't happen. But that shocking, unimaginable impossibility is exactly where our passage begins. You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The Ephesians to whom Paul is writing were not part of God's chosen people. They weren't descendants of Abraham. They had no share in the promises of God. God hadn't called them to be his people. He hadn't said that he was their God. But the startling news was that that had changed. The real saviour had come. The one to whom Noah, Moses, Joshua, Gideon, Samson, David, all the rescuers and deliverers we've been discovering in our Bible overview, the one to whom those minor heroes, the true rescuers, to all who these minor heroes had been pointing, has now come. And everything has changed. For the Ephesian believers, their spiritual citizenship had changed. They're now God's people, fully integrated into God's household, part of the very fabric of his kingdom, living stones in the church of God. 
from being beyond the pale, from being enemies at war with God, they've become beloved members of God's family, welcomed even into the inner sanctuary of the temple of God. It's startling. It even startles Paul as he writes it. He tries to go on, uh, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the Gentiles, but he's sidetracked as he realises the enormity of what he's just written. This is not just another piece of Bible trivia. This is the climax to which the whole arc of the Bible narrative has been leading. Sorry, James, I'm giving it away. The rescue of God's people from their slavery to sin. The revelation that the promises made to Abraham are open to all who put their faith in Christ. That God's promise of an eternal inheritance was not a promise that Abraham's descendants would never die out. It was a promise that those whom God have called will have eternal life. And so he gets sidetracked <laughs> and, uh, and, and Ephesians 3 from verse 4 goes on, in reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's, by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles, you and I, are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and share us together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Indeed, Paul's whole purpose is to proclaim this mystery. He goes on, Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. And what is that mystery again, in case you missed it? His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. If this is momentous news, and it is, what should we do with it? Perhaps it's telling, before we go on to see what Paul has to say here in Ephesians, to reflect on what we can learn from the historical events that pointed to this pivotal, climactic point in history. The picture of life in the garden before the fall is one of God and man and woman meeting together with freedom, walking and talking together. When it says just after the fall in Genesis 3.8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
it's pretty clear that the unusual thing that's going on here is not that God is walking in the cool of the garden and looking for them. Uh, It's that Adam and Eve now feel the urgent need to hide so that their shame won't be revealed. As we look at the heroes, the common thread is that God talks with them. God talks to them, they talk to God. We see God telling Noah to build the ark. We hear God's promises to Abraham and Abraham's questions in response. Moses meets with God regularly, so much so that the eulogy for Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 34 says, Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And even the most cursory glance through the Psalms shows the intimacy of the relationship between God and David, the man after God's heart, the one whom God loved. But these heroes weren't meant to be special in that way. This was the relationship that God desired to have with all of his people. He was to be their God. They were to be his people. He would dwell with them. The tent of his presence was right there in the middle of their camp each night in the wilderness. And the fiery pillar before them was before them as they walked during the day. Powerful reminders that God was with them, dwelling with them. When Jeremiah speaks about the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the law. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbour or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the law. He isn't saying much that's actually new. Putting the law in their minds, writing it on their hearts, God being their God, his people being God's people, didn't God direct his people to be careful to obey his laws, to write them on their foreheads, to talk about them to their children? Didn't he already promise to be their God and to take them as his people. But the seemingly never-ending cycle of sin and judgment in the Old Testament comes about because the people of Israel don't embrace this relationship with God. The common refrain that we hear over and over again is that they forgot the God of their fathers, the God who brought them up out of Israel. Now, of course, they didn't really forget. They didn't suffer from amnesia. Rather, they suffered from indifference. He was the God of their fathers or grandfathers or great-great-grandfathers. They knew about him. They'd heard the stories of what he might have done. But he was an abstract distant God, the star of the traditional cultural stories that had become boring and tired 
with endless retelling. And so they drifted away, drawn to things that were more important, more exciting, to the things that would make them just like everyone else. And that's the danger that faces us and that faced the Ephesian Christians. And that's why Paul's response to the revelation of the greatest mystery of all time is to get down on his knees and pray. And what does he pray for? He prays for the quality and intimacy of the Ephesians' relationship with God. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner beings, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. He doesn't pray that they'll be healed from their sicknesses or that they would be spared from persecution. He doesn't pray that they would become missionaries or evangelists. He doesn't pray that their physical needs will be met. No, his prayer is that they will grasp the full measure of God's love for them in Christ, that they will be absolutely certain of his presence within their hearts that the glow of the Spirit dwelling in their hearts will far outshine the brightness of the pillar of fire that burned above the tabernacle as the Israel camped in the wilderness. God has so much in store for us. He's called each and every one of us with an eternal purpose for our lives. He's equipped each of us differently so that we can each serve him and one another in different ways. A few to teach, some to tend those who are ill, others to help those in need, some to take care of administrative details, all of us to show love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness and self-control. Indeed, such service is what we were made for and the work each of us is to do has already been prepared for us. Just before our passage, back in Ephesians 2 verse 10, it says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. But don't let the work distract you from what is even more important knowing God and being known by God. The mystery is that God chose you from before the beginning of the world, that he paid the ultimate price to put aside the insurmountable barrier between you and him. 
And he did this because he inexplicably loves you. He inexplicably cares for you. He inexplicably wants to be your father. And he inexplicably wants you to enjoy the full measure of his love that surpasses knowledge. We're quite silly sometimes. I'm quite silly all the time. I get caught up in the business of life and family and forget to nurture my relationship with Elizabeth. I'm too busy to talk, to walk together, to listen, to share, even though the relationship is the whole reason for my busyness with life and family. And I get caught up in the busyness of church and service and I forget to nurture my relationship with God. Too busy to talk to God in prayer. Too occupied in my work for him to notice that he's there with me. Too busy to listen or to read his word. Too distant to even contemplate that he might be speaking to me. You might gather that God has been speaking to me through this as I prepared this and even as I've been speaking it today. Maybe he's been speaking to you as well. If he has, or even if he hasn't, we do well to remember that God is a jealous God. In the words of Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Let's love God. Let's place him at the centre of our conversations, whether we're at home or on the road or lying down to sleep or enjoying a meal or in the middle of our work. Let's not take for granted the one who has lavished so many blessings on us. And if remembering how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and knowing this love that surpasses knowledge and being filled to the measure of all the fullness of God isn't quite enough for you. Let's finish by reflecting on the closing verses of today's passage. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The one who wants us to fully understand the depth of his love for us is so much greater than anything we can imagine. His purposes span over a far longer time horizon than anything we can imagine. He is at work within us. But to know that richness, to begin to glimpse its fulfilment, to begin to understand, we need to listen, to talk, to spend time with the one who loves us with a love beyond our comprehension. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, help us not to go through the motions with you. Father, help us as we meet with you, as we come to worship you each Sunday, as we study your word on our own, as we meet together in small groups. Help us to be expectant of our relationship with you. Father, to be expectant of hearing you talk to us, to be expectant of knowing, coming to know more of how much you love us, to understand in greater measure what it is that you have done for us on the cross as you sent the Lord Jesus to die in our place. To be more aware of the presence of your spirit within us and its promptings and leadings and directions. To be uncomfortable with the ways in which we have fallen out of your path and your purposes. Father, to be distressed by the way in which we cause you pain through our sin. To be soft, to have our hearts, Father, open to be changed and renewed by you. To deepen our relationship with you. To grow in our love for you. To grow in our intimacy and understanding of you. And Father, out of that understanding, out of that relationship, out of our love, the love that you have shown us, and the love we have for you, to share that with those around us who need to hear how much it is that you love them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. of the nation.